Are you underutilizing one of the most powerful restaurant marketing tools on the planet? What do 92 million monthly Yelp searchers see when they land on your page? Is your content accurate and attention grabbing? Are you using every conversion tool possible to set yourself apart? Yelp is here to help. Go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to sign up for a one-on-one with a specialist that will review your Yelp page and share tips to help you stand out. Again, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to supercharge your Yelp page today. Now here we go. When you see something that's like, wow, that's a great new idea. I never thought of that. Now I'm going to deep dive. Now I'm going to go and I'm going to say, okay, how can I learn this? How can I be an expert at this so that I can show somebody else? I think that's like the next level. It's not just being a sponge and all the information comes in, but then you don't do anything with it. Like we have a community of people that we got to serve and help and make sure they survive. So we've got to learn so that we can keep pulling them along. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. We've spent the last 15 months together questioning every assumption about this industry. What I've learned from more than 100 interviews is that a 6% net profit doesn't need to be the standard. I've collected the best practices from the best operators in the world and created a guide detailing the five steps they've all taken to achieve a 15% net profit in their restaurants. You can download that guide for free by visiting restaurantprofitguide.com. Again, that's restaurantprofitguide.com. I'm not crazy. There are definitely people out there making an absolute fortune in this industry. They're just few and far between, and many haven't been willing to share their recipe for success. But you can learn a lot from observing the masters at work, and that's the vantage point from which the team over at Restaurantopia views our industry. They're working with the best in the business to create extraordinary results. And today, David, Brian, and Anthony share the tactics and tools used by the best to create unstoppable restaurant brands. Talk to me about comeback stories. So there's a ton to learn from the guys that have been doing it right and doing it right from the beginning. But there's also a ton to be learned from the guys that were doing it wrong and managed to turn that corner. Oh, I've seen so many people be able to come out of this that I didn't think that they would be able to. A bad business operation is a bad business operation. But what the pandemic caused everyone to do was be self-reflective and be humble. Would you guys agree? Well, back them into the corner, right? So they had to make the decision that maybe they should have made a long time ago, but they were uncomfortable in doing so. And they said, now I don't have a choice. So we're just going to go ahead yeah, and make this yeah, decision. Give up or, or do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And these people don't give up. I've seen some give up that I thought that was the best move they've ever could have made. And that people that closed a location that they would have strung it out. And I think one thing that I've seen when I lived through 08 and the housing crisis and then through the pandemic, and I don't mean to sound like old man sites here to everyone, but the guys who moved quicker were the ones that were the most successful. The construction guys who had the big crews and were fully leveraged and had the big developments that just, man, cut off the arm right then and, and right-sized were the ones that survived. The ones that tried to make it 12 months thinking that it was just a dip died. And they went bankrupt. And then the same true here. Like if you had a fine dining concept that was not built for fast casual or was in a bad location for fast casual or was it unable to pivot, 
man, close it down. Don't keep it going. Don't keep the staff going. Because three months of payroll, three months of rent is real dollars. And I think when you talk about a comeback story, we probably don't have a lot of them because it's more of a mindset. Like you either have that mindset, that growth mindset of I'm always going to get better. I'm always going to research. I'm always going to be self-aware and do those things. And Anthony's got a great story about a large chain. It's not even a customer of ours, but they're a large chain in this area that did a lot of volume. And he was talking to him for a long time about the menu size and about raising prices and this and that. And, and they were doing okay. Like, I don't think it wasn't like this change saved their restaurant today. Now, maybe it saved it five years from now. I don't know. But like some of the stuff when you go like, okay, somebody was like really at the depths and came back, you know, the rising Phoenix. Like, I don't know if I have a lot of those because you either have that mentality of, of doing it or not. Now I've seen where maybe there's an older owner and then like the sun comes in and interjects energy and he, you know, the father goes off in the sunset and then the sun takes off with something. You know, I'm working, I've seen I'm those working before, with the customer maybe, right yeah, now that's doing yeah. that actually. Yeah. yeah. But to say somebody that was like, they were on the brink of disaster and then they just, this one thing turned it around. Like, I don't know if I've seen a lot of that. At that's least- the thing what you're talking about though, that maybe the instance, if the elder statesman would have ran the company, it probably wouldn't have survived the pandemic. And it got overwhelming for that person because they were in the bottom rung. And then all of a sudden, the sum takes over and injects, to Brian's point, a lot of technology into this thing. And all of a sudden, this energy and then boom, they're right back on the right track. But the son has less preconceived notions, less ego and less all that in there. He was able to eliminate all the emotion out of the decision. And less fear and less. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. And maybe you guys aren't seeing it from the, my perspective because sometimes I'm in with someone that's hurting a little bit more and as opposed to trying to massage the operation to make it better. I think you'll see operators who made moves and maybe their story's not over yet where they shelved the location and they kept two or three locations that are still working good. And then I think you'll see them in four to five years, they'll be up to 10 locations. I think this is really an inflection point in their operations that will be looked back as a great opportunity, even though it's so, so painful. And let's unpack that. So I want to get granular. The heart of the question really comes down to this. What are the levers? I say it all the time that in order to double Prue and Proper's revenue, I did a thousand things. Now, only three of those mattered, but it took doing a thousand to figure out what those three were. In your experience, when you see massive, significant improvement in someone's restaurant operations, what are the levers they're pulling to get there? I'll tell you, Amaya, it's looking at prime costs, looking at their labor, looking at their food cost of their menu and what their menu is. And then secondarily, what are they doing for marketing to really put their brand top of mind and in front of their customers and not do a race to the bottom with coupons and other cheesy tricks like that, but to really be a value add and communicate community and engagement with their customers. I want to get real cliche on you, but I want to talk about culture. As simple as that is, let's talk about training and onboarding because the customers that we have right now that are experiencing the less amount of struggle. Now, listen, even a lot of them are doing really, really well. They still have some pains, right? It's not a perfect world out there. But if we go back just the training processes and the onboarding process, what are you doing during orientation to make that employee a fan? Are you really spending the time with them to develop a bond? Are you hiring the right people, vetting the right people, training the right people, training them the right way extensively enough, like based on habit instead of time, that sort of thing? And again, these are all notions we kick around all the time. But the fact is no one has the discipline to do them. And now it's tough for operators because the labor pool is so short. So these operators who didn't do that before but now want to do it don't have the opportunity to do it because they can't find the staff to do it. And so the examples we gave you before, these companies were the ones that had the culture from tip to tail that their employees were honored to work there. They were treated in such a way and had such a fulfilling job that they couldn't wait to go back to work. 
they couldn't wait to go honor that employer. No, and I think to go back to Brian's point on like the food cost and the menu and, and, and that kind of stuff, like that seems like a given. When we say that, I feel like it's perceived as like, well, yeah, they have to know their prime cost. They have to know, but you'd be surprised how many local independent operators don't. No, I wouldn't because I was that guy at one point well, in my career as well. Well, you wouldn't be. You wouldn't be. But I was that guy, right? Because I was busy. And you had alcohol too. Yeah. So take out the alcohol, make it a fast casual concept where it is all food. And you have no room for mistakes. That's the one thing that I think only restaurateurs understand is that the room for error. And we talk about fear and we talk about that overwhelming sense of fear that flows over us. And you're like, God, and this is of all entrepreneurs, like, am I going to be able to make payroll? Am I going to be able to make rent? What does in Ohio, January, February, March, man, those are gut check. God, I hated those months as an operator. Like, I knew the meetings that were coming. I oh knew what was going to happen. I, like, know, like, I was just like, Christmas. Oh, shit. Here we go. It's like gift card. Can we sell more gift cards? Yeah, 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 <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And that fear that comes over us. And you got to put that past you and put systems in place. And it's going to be there. There's going to be downturns. But you have to be able to embrace the fear and, and move forward. One of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you guys is perspective. I feel like you sit at the top of the mountain. You have the ability to garner all of this, we'll call it like theoretical, like book smart education. Again, you all have firsthand experience as owners and operators. And then again, you have access to the best operators in the state of Ohio. And so I'm curious to know, because there are all of these maxims, these absolutes, these platitudes that you hear in the industry. What is one thing that is believed to be universally true in this industry that you believe to be untrue? For somebody to say, like, I own a restaurant, it sounds sexy and cool and all these things. Well, but it like, is. Yeah, well, of course. But the real work that goes into it and the struggle and the fear and all the things we're talking about, like, it's real, man. And it's like, it takes a unique individual. The, the days of, and this is how we open up our podcast for Restaurantopia, the days of just opening up the doors and the business just happens, like, it's over, man. You just, you know, had an extra 75 grand from your pension or something, you want to open up a restaurant or open up a bar and it's just, boom, you just open the doors and people are there and it's great. But that stuff's over, man. People are, they're more aware and they have some culinary needs that they want and they have some expectations that they want, whether it's convenience or quality or speed or whatever it is. And that consumer is different. They're not just going to the watering hole to have a shot and a beer and five nights a week. Like they want a great experience and great value. And it's a hard industry. I mean, I think the sexiness of it is probably like a, maybe a misnomer. For me, it's like, I kind of want to bring sexy back. I'm a bit of a JT <laughs> fan, but... I'm going to tell you, man, like you're looking at a labor crisis like we've never seen before. And, and as we talked earlier, people are migrating from our business to other industries. It's not restaurant to restaurant anymore. It's not just competing with the restaurant down the road with wages and things like people are leaving. It's an exodus, right? And I think, and I know Brian disagrees with me vehemently on this, is that I think that we did such a poor job of communicating what the industry was really like to people. I was a chef and I was very proud of my 70 or 80 hour work weeks and I wore it as a big fat badge of honor right on my chest and look at me. I'm so damn cool. I sacrificed my whole life for this shit and now I'm out of it and I'm like, what was I doing? What kind of message was I propagating and why was I working that much? And I know a lot of people out there feel the need that they have to work that. And I know it's going to be kind of a divisive conversation or polarizing or whatever, but I don't think the need is there quite as much as it used to be. And as Brian said, is is it kind of has to change because otherwise you're not going to be able to attract anybody. And until we make it sweet in the pot for prospective employees, like it's going to be hard to lure them back from where they are. And 
what do we have to do as leaders in the industry to change the 80-hour work week to something that's livable? What do we have to do to rearrange our profit and loss statement to where we can offer livable wages to our staff? Meanwhile, while passing costs along to our guests, but not to a point to where they're going to stop coming, right? And I know you fought this battle because you had very strong beliefs and your stance was very firm in how you treated your staff. And it's incredibly admirable. But you told us a little bit ago that you did chase some guests away because they're like, why in the hell is this so expensive? Absolutely. But you stood by your beliefs and those were important to you. But guess what? I bet your culture was amazing because of it, because the people believed in what you believed in, right? So that being said, I think I don't know that we have to work 100-hour weeks. I don't know that we have to dedicate our whole life to it. And in fact, if, if that stays the same, I don't think our industry is going to do very well down the road. I think that is changing. I think what we're seeing with the labor pool and in the restaurant study that Anthony did was flexibility and culture are going to be the future. So if you're at a place that is soulless and has no culture, People are not going to stay there. I mean, there's just so many opportunities and I encourage them leave, man. Just if you're working at the clown or the king or whatever place and there's no culture there, like, man, go to a local independent that's got five locations, that's got good training, that the staff loves each other and cares about each other and has the flexibility. Like, hey, I can work this Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and every other Saturday or whatever works for your schedule. Like, that's going to be the new norm. And the, uh, Hell's Kitchen, like mentality, that's out the window. It's got to be. It's demoralization. It's abuse. And it's all those things. The shit I went through growing up in kitchens. Are you kidding me? No, you're not breaking anybody down anymore and you shouldn't. Oh, I got broken down. And guess what? It feels terrible. But you never got built back up. And then you continue that cycle of abuse. And I think you got to continue love, continue caring about people, continue coaching, elevate people up. And to Josh's point, like to keep them in industry, you got to show them a path. And how do you get that server to manager and then that manager to multi-unit operator? Because it's going to be a little bit of a dip in <laughs> pay. But we got to fix that too, right? Yeah. But again, I think as an industry, I think that's going to be very difficult for us to change. That has to be changed at the legislative level. I don't think one operator is going to change. That's got to be a huge cultural shift. And this, I don't know how to change that. Well, but so this, maybe that's my Here's ignorance. how you change it. This conversation needs to keep happening. Yeah, this yeah. can't yeah. be this podcast. Mm-hmm. Like somebody's got to listen to this and then again, I got to go do some action in their place and they got to talk about it and they got to have conviction and have values of what they believe in because I believe a lot of the operators out there, they do have it. But again, because of all the things we talked about, fear and all those things, they're, they're not getting to that point. But I will tell you, I believe and I'm going to make the prediction here, and this can be edited out if it's false. Um, <laughs> We're left in. Let's see how this <laughs> but I see a dynamic shift in the role of the server and the revenue being generated by the server and the redistribution of that revenue as we move forward. Now, the law has to change, but I think being able to take the server out of the equation for some concepts, not all. But for some, I mean, fine dining is rarefied air, and I think you're going to have that and you want that there. But what does the chicken wing place look like without a server? And you just have runners and you got QR codes. And you pay on an app or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why would you pay for labor, especially when you can't hire labor? And that's where I think the shift is coming. And is that going to change hospitality? I would say yes. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, what do you do? You're going to Zoom call a server and be like, hey, would you like another tall boy? Like, I don't know how that works. But again, I do see a change coming. Well, and I think it's no different if you look at retail. Like, we're all buying clothes probably online. At what point is retail's dying on that end of it? And then, but is it going to come back where you're like, oh, I can go in and actually try it on? I don't know. So like the human interaction of the service and stuff, like, does it need to go away for it to come back with appreciation? I'm not saying I know the answer. But but it comes back different and smaller. 
I think I'm with Brian, like certain concepts, I think it fits very well and other concepts you absolutely cannot do without that interpersonal touch and that servitude. It's amazing. But yeah, to your point. No, but you're going to pay for it. Like, I, you know, it's, it's a service that you're going to pay for. Yeah, yeah as yeah. you should. Yeah. yeah, right. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But again, I just, again, maybe I'm going to get hate mail from this, but the line cook should make the same amount as the server. Yeah, it's a European model. Again, I don't know how to level that playing field, but I have a feeling it's going to take from one to give to the other. It's not going to be like, oh, we're going to pay more. For the- <laughs> well, and that's exactly what Dave's talking about. Is it has to be a more of a monumental shift. It can't be one operation because you'll be left out to dry. No servers will come work for you, right? Like Unless someone acts in concert. No, I, I think there'd just be a change. There'd be fewer server jobs. You could transition to counter style. I would argue that you have to be the change that you want to see in this world. And I don't mean that as a platitude. I mean, like when we went to a whole house pool at Pro and Proper, 20% of the staff quit. And I did it with that expectation that you have to put your money where your mouth is and you have to live your values. And we have the ability to sit here as collective outsiders and wonder what's next. But for the people listening, you have the opportunity to choose what's next. You came up in an industry that told you how to live, how to be, how many hours a week you were going to work, how you were going to operate your business, what you were going to serve, how you were going to serve it. And we're at this pivotal moment where you actually have the ability to question those things and make different choices for yourself based off not only your values, but the life you want to live. What an amazing opportunity it is too, because we don't always get this get out jail free card, right? It's almost like you want to look back at the industry and just highlight all the shit you hated about it and eliminate it right in your own location and make it more That's why we become business owners. That's why you open your own restaurant. It has a lot less to do with cuisine and a lot more to do with your vision for the future of your life, your business, your employees, your community. Wow. I mean, you blew my mind away. Like, I think there could be change. Already has been, man. It's choose your own adventure, man. No, no, I, 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 I agree. The good news now is the patrons are going to forgive you to at least some degree. I would love to leave people with the fact that it is your thing. You have the power to change things. And again, whether it's changing the labor market or that aspect of it or some other aspect of of your restaurant. And that's one thing that you do such a great job, Josh, with your podcast and, and we try to do with Restaurantopia is bring people information. Man, if you already know this stuff, then it provides no value. I hope I provide value and that these are some new tricks or some tricks that you've heard of that you don't know how to implement and, and that, that we do that. But change is going to happen so fast over the next 20 years. It is, you better embrace it now because it's not going to be incremental like it was over the last 50 years. I think change is going to happen at light speed pace. Let's talk about that because you gave me a beautiful softball. The next question I wanted to ask was, how do you educate yourselves? What platforms are you looking to? What operators, what educational programs are you using to learn about best practices? What's next? So we have a unique ability to look at the industry from so many different facets. So like we're internally talking to our sales reps and our sales reps are not just on the ground. I mean, they're in the business. They're talking to the operator every single day. So they're constantly bringing us information about trends and what's working, what's not working, issues that operators are having with pain points. And that's what we try to do is look at those areas and try to coach ourselves up on it. And then, again, talk to national resources, talk to experts like yourself that have been in the industry and and then talk to people who are doing well and ask them. And it's just really a collective mindset of 
how do we talk to as many people to find the right answer? There's no resource where you can just type it in, you know, like Google and it pops out the answer. Yeah, I must get 25 newsletters plus some podcasts now, and I've been turned on to them, plus Technomic by Winsight and the distribution like market reports and things. I mean, it comes out from all angles. I mean, there's a lot, man. And it's like, I asked you this question a few weeks ago, actually, and you sent me back a laundry list. I'm like, holy moly, that's impressive. But the truth is, there's no silver bullet. You got to glean from everywhere. You got to take it on from everywhere. But there are great resources out there, like your newsletter, Pineapple Post. Like, it's amazing. Flattery will get you everywhere. I know. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Like, I get your newsletter and I am actually excited to read it. Those are rare. Yeah, no, no. And that's how good it is. And to see resources like that put out to operators is critical. But you, as an operator, you have to be open to learn. You have to be a constant student of the game. Sponge it, man. Yeah, I think it comes down to like being aware, no blinders, and being infinitely curious. I forget the quote, but it's like, I think you gave this to me, Brian. I don't know if you stole it from somewhere, but it was like, I, I know everything because I know nothing. Or the reverse of that is when you know everything, you learn nothing. You know what I mean? So I think it's being infinitely curious, but then it's also taking action. When you see something that's like, wow, that's a great new idea. I never thought of that. Now I'm going to deep dive. Now I'm going to go and I'm going to say, okay, how can I learn this? How can I be an expert at this so that I can show somebody else? I think that's like the next level. It's not just being a sponge and all the information comes in, but then you don't do anything with it. Like we have a community of people that we got to serve and help and make sure they survive. So we've got to learn so that we can keep pulling them along. Yeah. We just had a guest on our show, Ken McGarry, the surprise restaurant manager. Great book. But again, just practical tips. Very good. Joe Polizzi, he's a Cleveland guy, uh, national bestselling author with Content Inc. Like he taught me on how to roll out a content marketing strategy. And again, I know nothing. I'm a lawyer. So just so you know, like most lawyers know nothing <laughs> and, and don't edit this out, but like they if, know, if you look, if you look at this episode out. spikes, like yeah. we lost the servers, but they know nothing, but their trait and their claim to fame is that they're constant learners and that they got a construction case. So they know nothing about retaining walls. Now they know everything about retaining walls because you have to do a deep dive down into these subject matters. It's so true though. You got to be well-versed in what you're defending or prosecuting, right? Yeah. You know how I picked my clients, right? It was the guy who walked in the door. Like, it, I, like, I don't get to pick the winner. I had to make him the winner. Like, you get to take the information that you have and then run with it. And let's then do let's it. stop right there. I didn't get to pick the winner. I had to make them the winner. I'm going to apply that to training just so you that, know. That's, let's that, go to that's my seminars. Great, right that, now. That's yeah. life. Yeah. Like, you know, grandpa didn't give me the steel mill and then 75 restaurants. Like, you have to build and No, he build. gave you a job in the steel mill when you were 12, from what I understand. <laughs> no. We always joke. A common phrase in my household was lack of criticism is praise enough. <laughs> so you, there's nothing. It explains so much. There's nothing wrong with working. There's joy in hard work. That was very prominent. But I think as a restaurateur, you need to be a student of the game and constantly learning and finding resources that you can trust and lean on. And then also, I would say this to your listeners. Reach out to your community, and I'm talking about your community of other like-kinded entrepreneurs that are restaurateurs. They are not your competition. They are your friends. Your competition are the big three. You have to worry about the floor of marketing people in Chicago that are working for Chipotle, that are working for Carabas, and they're doing a deal with the national distribution chain that allows them the ability to give a meal away for free. You can't do that. Your food costs would go through the roof. So what are you doing to 
talk to other like-minded people to share best practices. Where are you finding your labor pool? What are you doing to attract and retain talent? What podcast are you listening to? There's some very delightful podcasts out there. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then take action. Yeah, oh, take wait, action. Wait, wait, yeah, yeah. Yes. action. Yes. So is it better to watch a full season of Real Housewives or yes. be a student of the game oh. and listen to 20 episodes of a podcast and then take action. Look at what you're doing with your time. Cause I'm telling you down the road, this is going to pay off over and over and over again. If you let complacency be the way of your life, you're going to go out of business. Just wrap it up and go to Applebee's and see if they got a GM position. Over yeah. There. To your point, man, the best operators I come across have their ears on at all points in time. It doesn't matter if it's a dishwasher, bus person, server, cook, whatever. If someone's got a good idea. They take it and they run with it. The pride is gone. There's no ego in the process. It's like a great idea. Bring it. Let's go. And these people excel at that. And to your point too, they take action. They're not afraid. It's like that special board stuff we were talking about. They throw it up there. They test market it, see if it floats. If it doesn't, they scrap it and they try again. But the thing is they're constantly churning these people. They're constantly thirsty, constantly hungry. And they never take their foot off the gas. Constantly hiring. I love that. So two points I want to take away from what you said. One, they put the ego aside. They work with other people. And two, constantly hiring. So when you walk into the grocery store and you see the ad, like we pay $11, like, whoa, $11. That means every single person in this room is my target as a potential employee. Isn't that amazing? Like you already know as a competitive advantage, you're paying more than $11, then these are your people potentially. So you find the person with the smile on their face, the one that's hustling, the one that's really hard Just bring at a table, post up and start holding interviews. No, you just go up to them and go, hey, I'm so impressed with your work ethic and attitude. I would love for you to come work and join our family and work for us. You want to talk about thinking outside the box? You think Indeed is your answer? No, man, that's being filtered and the data is being sold to the national chains. Go out and find people. You got to think outside the box. If everyone else is doing it, it's probably not the way to do it. We used to do Craigslist. You guys do Craigslist a lot? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we yeah. did Craigslist. Now it's like the dark web. Like, don't go to Craigslist. <laughs> it is not a very pretty place. The game changer for me was this. And it was that we used to hire for skill and then train culture, which doesn't work. Like, what worked was forgetting skill entirely. We believed that we had an infrastructure in place where we could train anyone to do anything, that skills could be acquired, and we hired exclusively for culture. Do you know who taught me that? I ran into Mark Rosati at the time. He was the dark, director of ops for Shake Shack. Mm-hmm. And this is probably 2012, 2011, because I was so fixated on talent. And he told me that during the interviews, they don't care about your experience. He would ask this question, what's your passion? And say, you would tell me comedy. I'd be like, all right, give me a comedy routine. And if you were passionate enough to stand up and give me a two-bit joke or a little routine, then he would hire you because your passion is through the roof. So your ability to cut through all the anxiety, embarrassment, whatever, do the right job and show your best foot. Like, he was happy with that. It's such an amazing notion. It's become commonplace now, right? But for a long time, we didn't do that at all. One thing that we look at Hillcrest, the criteria is, and again, it's not on that skill set. Are you humble? Are you coachable? Are you likable? And can I change your life? Those are the things I'm going to look at. I know if I have those four things that I'm going to have an employee for life and a friend for life. And don't wear a tie. Only on days of court. Only if someone's going to have a bad day, I wear a tie. (laughs) (laughs) It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice, words of encouragement you'd like to offer? I think we've been saying it, honestly. I feel like I beat a dead horse, but like, be aware, be a student, take action. This is a pivotal time in our industry and probably in your business that you've got some major decisions to make. And I think 
hopefully we've given you some things to think about and ponder, but take away that there can be a light at the end of the tunnel you may be in and go after it. I'd like to say to the listeners out there is that you're not alone. We're all here for you. Josh is here for you. Restaurantopia, we want to provide value to you and help, but be aware of your mental health. Be aware of the mental health of your employees and make sure that you're lifting people up. Be an energy giver, not an energy taker, but you're not alone. Just know that there's resources out there to help you and seek those resources out and be a constant student of the game. Yeah. When it comes to change, let go a little of that fear. Don't be afraid. Try it out. Go for it. That's the team from Restaurantopia. To check out more on David, Brian, and Anthony, go to restaurantopia.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.